greatness our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ has shown to us by bringing all of us here this morning, filled with His Spirit, having the Word, and we can worship together in freedom with open windows and sing and pray and read the Scriptures and feel joyful in the presence of Christ as forgiven children. Would you turn with me in your Bibles this morning, and our reading this morning is from 2 Timothy chapter 4. And please stand with me for this reading. You can follow on the screen or open your text. This morning we're coming to our final final session together, or sermon together on this particular series, Be Imitators of Me as I Am of Christ. And so I thought it fitting that we look at the epitaph, if you will, of the Apostle Paul. And let's read this together in unison. 2 Timothy 4, 6-8. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved His appearing. Please join me in prayer. Father, we come to You as Your church this morning. We love You. We don't love You as we ought to. But we are growing in our love for You. The more we see Your glory in the Word, the more we know You as You are, the more we worship You. Father, we pray as we open Your Word this morning that you would show us more of Your glory, that You would show us the glory of Christ in His grace at work through the life of the Apostle Paul. Father, we're thankful that You chose the Apostle Paul and worked in his life by Your mercy, Your grace, Your patience to bring him and transform him to be someone like Christ that we can follow. Father, we... We do not depend upon Paul, but we do depend upon Christ. He is our Lord. He is the King of the universe. He rules all things. He deserves to to do so. He He has earned that right as the last Adam to sit in the place of lordship over all. And He reigns in our hearts through the Spirit. And so we pray that that His likeness would be formed in us by His command, by His power, by the illumination of the Spirit this morning as we meditate on Your Word together, that this would not be simply a religious activity or event, but that it would be a moment of spiritual transformation. We pray these things for the glory of Christ and Your glory, Father. We pray them through Christ, our Mediator, our Savior, In His name, Amen. Thank you. Please be seated. Like I said, we're we're, um, coming to the final part of this particular series. The Apostle Paul and his writing, Be imitators of me as I am of Christ, which comes out very clearly in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 1. And so the main idea of this series has been, by the power of Christ's Spirit and grace, 
Let us imitate Paul as he imitated Christ. And we've been looking at 15 points where the apostle's life revealed in the Scripture is certainly worth imitating. I'm certain there's many more, but these were 15 that came to my mind very quickly. The last two weeks, we've looked at the first 10. Let me just read them through with you, and then we'll look at 11 through 15 together today. When I think of the Apostle Paul, and I'm sure you can agree with me as you think through the New Testament and his life displayed in the book of Acts and certainly revealed through the epistles, I think of genuine humility. I think of boasting in Christ through weakness. A champion of depending on Christ's grace. Apostle Paul constantly gave us texts of Scripture that linked together the command to walk in Christ in some way with the grace that's provided to us, the strength that enables us through the Spirit for a heart full of thanksgiving. No matter what situation the Apostle Paul found himself in, by God's strange providence, he overflowed with thanksgiving. A sacrificial love for others. Relentless gospel devotion. Effective discipleship and mentoring. Selfless ministry motivations laboring to unburden others in the proclamation of the gospel. Are you thinking back through these with me? This is, this is the life of Paul. I want to be like this, don't you? Resilience in various circumstances. This morning we'll look at the last five together. Willing to do unpleasant ministry for the sake of Christ and the good of the church. Willing to do unpleasant ministry. Eagerness to suffer for Christ's sake. He was a spiritual warfare warrior, maybe we could call him. 14, persevering eternal perspective. 15, exultant doxology. And we could call that a love for Christ. Unquenchable love for Christ. Never growing love and adoration for Christ. Let's look at these together. Number 11, willingness to do unpleasant ministry. Is ministry ever unpleasant? Of course it is. You don't always feel joy in every moment of ministry. Even the ministry that Christ would command of us in the New Testament. Sometimes going into those ministry moments, you feel anxious, don't you? And and overwhelmed. And one of the things we see in the life of the Apostle Paul is that he knew with confidence how God would have him to minister to those whom he loved, the church of Jesus Christ, and he did so even denying his own sense of, I want to feel good right now. Three things come to mind, well, four really, and you can jot these references down. Paul in love rebuked a church who was ignoring immoral behaviors. He rebuked a church that was ignoring immoral behaviors. Look first at uh, 1 Corinthians with me, chapter 4. First Corinthians chapter 4, I will start reading in verse 14. Paul writes, I do not want these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children, Paul writes to this Corinthian church. So though you have, for though you have countless guides in Christ, 
You do not have many fathers, for I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. That's why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ, as I teach them everywhere in every church. Some are ignorant, as though I were not coming to you. But I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills, and I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. Listen to verse 21 of chapter 4. So what do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love in a spirit of gentleness? Before we look at the issue that Paul is coming to, Paul does desire to come and rebuke this beloved church with gentleness. But he says, if I have to come with words that feel like a bit of a rod, I will. Because I love you. So then chapter 5, verse 1, the issue comes up. It's actually reported that there is a sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife. And you're ignorant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And, if, and, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man, the one who is committing this immorality, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. You know what that verse tells me? It is better for a professing believer to have their earthly life decimated so that they can have eternal life with Christ. If that is what it takes to bring them to repentance. And Paul says this. And he says, your boasting is not good. Do you, do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Right? You're keeping this sin, you're tolerating it, it's going to spread like leaven in bread. Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are leavened, unleavened. For Christ, our Passover, has been sacrificed. And he continues to explain those things. And then he says, in verse 13, the very last verse of this section, God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Later on in 2 Corinthians chapter, I think chapter 4, the Apostle Paul says, now forgive this person because this particular person had repented. But that person would have not been pressed about their sin and brought to repentance had not this church exercised that discipline properly. And that church wouldn't have exercised the discipline properly for that person's good unless the Apostle Paul said, I am going to rebuke you for leaving leaven in the lump. You see, Paul was willing to do unpleasant ministry like that because he loved these people. Paul in love rebuked a church who was embracing inaccurate beliefs. We see this in Galatians. So it's not just behaviors that concern Paul, but inaccurate beliefs. In fact, the church in Galatia had begun to embrace a a way of salvation that wasn't the biblical gospel. Not every way to eternal life actually delivers, actually saves. Paul says here, there is one gospel. It's Christ alone. And when you begin to wander from that by adding 
good works to the way of salvation. Paul says that gospel does no longer save. That's, he takes great length to explain that in the letter of Galatians. And so he says in verse 6 of chapter 1, I'm astonished that you're so quickly deserting him who called you into the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. That's how Paul felt about gospel variations. They don't save. Let the one who teaches them be accursed. Do not listen to a false gospel. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one received, let him be accursed. For am I now seeking the approval of man? Paul didn't speak to gain the the approval of people. He spoke in love to please God. He says, or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I wouldn't be a servant of Christ. And so Paul, in love, rebuked a church that was ignoring immoral behaviors. He rebuked a church who was embracing inaccurate beliefs. Paul, again, in love, disciplined professing believers who were being blasphemous. We saw this many months ago now when we studied 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 18-20. through 20. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. Listen, by rejecting this, by rejecting the faith and a pure way of life, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Again, this is... This is Paul exercising church discipline and love. Why? So that people who are compromising the faith, the way of salvation, may learn to come back and trust in the truth. He did it in love, but he did unpleasant ministry things in love. And finally here, Paul in love rebuked a fellow apostle who was being intimidated by false teachers. Which apostle? Which of the original apostles did Paul rebuke publicly? Peter, right? The leader of the apostles. Talk about a moment of maybe he felt anxious there. You know, that would be intimidating, wouldn't, wouldn't it be? He says in Galatians 2 and verse 11, but when Cephas came to Antioch, that's another name for Peter, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But, but when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with Peter, him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you... Though a Jew live like a Gentile and not a Jew, how can you force Gentiles to live like Jews? And Peter was was corrected. What was Paul saying? Peter, I know these false Jewish teachers are very intimidating, but please do not require the Gentiles to start doing certain ceremonial laws in order to feel like they are the true church. 
You only need one thing to become the true church. What do you need? Christ and Him alone. And so Paul did something very unpleasant. He, in the presence of all, rebuked Peter. Let me bring this to a point of application for us this morning. Today, in the professing church, such rebukes are not desirable, are they? People don't like that. Many do not want to give such rebukes. Many do not want to hear and receive such rebukes. They're not pleasant. And such is one of the reasons for the great spiritual decline of the church today. So many are more concerned with feeling good about themselves today than with long-term spiritual health or even eternal life. Isn't that true? And this is a great inconsistency in, in which we live. Think about it this way. We do not get angry at the doctor for showing us an honest x-ray, do we? We don't. And the doctor does not hesitate to do so. The doctor does not hesitate to suggest the right treatment, however painful and inconvenient it will be, knowing that it will bring a cure. And we do not hesitate to receive that treatment and to set aside our fears because we know, we become convinced that it will do us good. There is nothing we frown more upon in the physical, medical world than when a doctor overlooks the true problem or gives us an incorrect treatment that does not address our need. But yet, this is how we think in the physical world of our bodies, but when it comes to spiritual things and eternal life, we do not want to show or see the x-rays. I don't want to see what's wrong with what I'm believing, and I don't want you to tell me. I don't want to be shown or, or see or, or to tell you to take that painful effort to tell you what's wrong. We do not want to suggest to receive the surgery. It's too hard to say, all right, I will reject this sin in my life. It's too much to say, no, I, I, I'm believing all wrong about the way of eternal life. I'll reject it. We would rather overlook the true problem and give and receive a pleasant treatment that does not address our true need. That is so inconsistent with the way we live in the physical world, isn't it? But Paul, the Apostle Paul, in great love for those whom he served, refused to give and live under such an illusion. He spoke the truth in love. He was committed to that. And so by the strength of the Spirit, let's also refuse to live under such a, a deadly illusion and learn to speak the truth in love like Paul did and be willing to do unpleasant ministry for the good of others and the glory of God. Be willing to receive unpleasant ministry from others. We all know what that's like. It's such an awkward moment when someone says, I need to talk to you privately. Right? Something that I've, that's been, I've been struggling with that, that's gone on and and I need to tell you about it. And, and those, our heart rates increase and so on. But you know what? That's good. Those are good moments. They're unpleasant, but they're good. Why? Because the Spirit of Christ uses them to sanctify us, to grow us beyond faulty beliefs and, and sinful ways of life. They're, they're for the glory of Christ. They're for the good of the church. 
willingness to do unpleasant ministry. Number 12, eagerness to suffer for Christ's sake. Two points here that I want to underscore in understanding this particular one. Paul understood the nature and purpose of his calling. Paul understood the nature and purpose of his calling. In Acts chapter 9, verses 15 and 16, we see God giving Ananias, that one who was sent to Paul to heal his blindness and to, to really speak the gospel to him, baptize him and so on, bring him into the body of Christ. Right there, God says to Ananias, you must go to, the, to, to Saul, he was called then, and, and do these things because I have called him to suffer much for my name in bringing the truth of the gospel to the Gentiles. Acts 9, 15, 16 brings that out. Paul was eager to suffer for Christ's sake because he understood the nature and purpose of his calling. The nature of his calling included great suffering. God had called him to suffer greatly in the communication of the gospel. Because obviously as he would go throughout the Gentile world in the communication of the gospel, he would be speaking truth in opposition to paganism. That would elicit great suffering. Also, certainly when converts of the Jewish religion would see their converts leaving and going over to the truth of the gospel, the religious leaders of the synagogue would also persecute Paul severely. Paul understood the nature, but he understood the purpose of his calling, that through this suffering, the gospel would extend to the Gentiles and many would be saved. So it was worth it to him. It was worth it. He understood. He didn't have a, a false concept of ministry or what it meant to preach the gospel. It included suffering, but it was not purposeless. It was for the salvation. I want to read to you the section in Ephesians where Paul talks about his calling. Would you turn to Ephesians 3 with me? And I'll read to you verses 1 to 13 because he refers to his own suffering at the very end of that paragraph. Ephesians 3, 1-13, For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. God entrusted something to Paul for the good of the Gentiles. How the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Gentiles are church members too when they come to Christ. Not just Jewish people. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of His power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone 
What is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things? So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that He has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in Him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. So there you have it. Paul says, I was appointed to preach the gospel of salvation to the Gentiles. And when you, church, you Ephesian church, who loves me, see me suffer, it's okay. It's okay. Don't lose heart when I suffer. This was part of God's plan for me in the proclamation of the gospel. It's actually your glory. It's, it's for your joy that I suffer so that you can know salvation in Christ. Paul understood the nature and purpose of his calling. Paul rejoiced even in his suffering, knowing what Christ would accomplish through his suffering, which would be salvation for those to whom he preached and eternal glory, that they would experience the eternal glory of Christ to enjoy relationship with Christ forever, and that Christ would be glorified by their eternal worship. We're not going to turn to these sections, but we have gone to these sections often, 2 Corinthians 4, 1-15, through 2 Corinthians 6, 1-13, through 13, detail Paul's suffering. There are lists of the suffering that he endured in carrying the gospel to the Gentiles. You name it, Paul suffered it. And he was okay with that. He rejoiced. Look at Colossians with me, though. I do want us to look at this text together. It's impossible for us to turn to all the texts that I have in my notes this morning. I hope you will take these home and, and read through them on your own and fill out more of this, these different points on your own. But we will look at some of them. Colossians 1, 24-29, you just take the time this week, maybe add up all of Paul's suffering for the sake of the gospel in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and 6, and then look what he says in Colossians 1, 24-29. He says, now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for, your, for the sake of his body. That is the church. What is Paul saying there? His suffering isn't atoning like Christ's was, but his suffering was necessary to get the gospel to all the people whom God had chosen for him to preach to. So in that way, he was filling up the sufferings of Christ. Christ came and lived and died and bore the sins of his people. Christ chose apostles to take that gospel and keep suffering in the dissemination of the gospel. That's what Paul's saying. Of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So him we proclaim warning everyone, teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. That's Paul. Eager to suffer for Christ's sake. 
Are you willing to suffer earthly afflictions in the process of delivering the gospel to those whom you love? That's a high calling. It's one that God has placed upon every believer, not just the Apostle Paul. Are you willing to suffer in order to see God use you to lead others, other precious souls into eternal life through salvation in Jesus Christ? Are you willing to suffer in order to see Christ honored for all of eternity through the life of a sinner who comes to Christ for eternal salvation through your words, through your influence? What might that suffering look like in that process? Maybe a negative emotions coming at you. Maybe a broken friendship. Maybe a, a family member might cut you off. Maybe... Maybe you might lose your job. Maybe you might lose your house. Maybe you might lose your life. And Jeremy was just reading this morning as we were praying for these brothers and sisters in Christ, different countries all over the world, every day. In fact, this morning, as we meet here, there are church gatherings that are being broken up elsewhere. And I guarantee you this morning that someone is or has died for the sake of Christ. Does that sober you? Are we willing to do that? See, when you understand that the gospel of Jesus Christ alone has power to rescue a sinner from the eternal wrath of God and deliver them safely into the eternal presence of God as a transformed person, any earthly suffering is worth that result. That's the, that's the safe position and perspective that a believer has. When you're in Christ, you're like, Death means I'm with Christ, and that's gain. But the person who's persecuting me right now for the sake of the gospel, if they die, they're not going to be with Christ. So I don't care what I have to suffer in order to get them the gospel. They are a precious soul. We often say to those who love the world so much that they refuse to see their need for salvation in Jesus Christ, we'll often say this, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world but loses his own soul? Right? We'll say that to people who need to receive the gospel. What point is it when a man gathers his whole life, earthly possessions, and then at the end of his life, he does, you know, we've said this many times, a hearse does not have a U-Haul trailer attached to it. You can't bring any of it with you. But you know what? I think sometimes we should remind ourselves of that truth in this regard. What does it profit? What good is it if I hold on to a pleasant earthly experience at the, at the risk of my neighbor losing his or her soul? Ever think of it that way? May we, like Paul, be eager and even joyful to suffer for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ so that many will be saved and Christ will be honored in them forever. 13, this morning, Spiritual warfare warrior. Paul was a spiritual warfare warrior. The Apostle Paul was so, I think, at least for a few reasons here. One, Paul understood his enemy. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2, actually, this is the section where the Apostle Paul is calling the Corinthian church to forgive that one that he was calling them to rebuke in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And he says, please forgive them. They have repented. Forgive them and restore them and love them. 
If you don't, that's troubling to the church. Forgiveness is so important. He says in verse 10 of 2 Corinthians 2, anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what have I forgiven if I have forgiven anything? Has, has, let me read that again. Indeed, what I have forgiven if I have forgiven anything has been for your sake in the presence of Christ. So that, so Paul forgives when there's been a wrong between him and a brother or sister in Christ. He forgives. He's, he's insistent on forgiveness so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. Many things could be said about this, but we won't take time to, to do that this morning. But we have an enemy. And though he is defeated and has been defeated at the cross, he still breathes out lies and temptations and discouragements and so on. He is busy. He is active. First Peter says he's a roaring lion walking about, seeking whom he may devour. And so Paul was very watchful over his life and over the ones he loved, knowing that the evil one, Satan, was alive and working to destroy. And knowing that he is very skillful in his schemes, in his designs. Right? We know this from the garden. He came to Adam and Eve. And he was more skillful than anyone. Right? It says in the text. He chose to take on the most skillful form of of, of an animal. And so, there you have. He is, he is many designs and schemes, but Paul understood his enemy. That's an important pursuit, to understand the enemy. He also understood his armor. Ephesians 6, 10 through 20, is the armor of God. That text, Paul not only understood his enemy, but he understood how to fight his enemy. God has provided to every believer equipment, armor, to use. Now, these aren't pieces of armor that we put on physically. And these aren't necessarily pieces of armor that we put on mystically, like, all right, putting on this armor now. You know, no, these are real aspects of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's look at Ephesians 6 for just a moment, and we'll just point out some of the pieces of armor and understand what God has provided to us. Paul says in verse 10, finally be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, because of that, take up the whole armor of God so that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. What are the armor? What what are the pieces of armor? Stand therefore having fastened on the belt of truth. Truth is the armor. Truth is a piece of armor. To defend ourselves and to stand against Satan's schemes. Having put on the breastplate of righteousness, the righteousness of Christ covering the believer is a piece of armor with which we fight. The righteousness that He not only declares to be ours, but then imparts to us in sanctification. And the shoes of your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. Peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ is a piece of armor. The good news of being at peace with God. Take the shield of faith. Faith, trusting 
in God's promises like a child trusts his father. That's a piece of armor with which you can extinguish all the fiery darts of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation, knowing that we are secure in our salvation, knowing that Christ will return and bring final salvation. That's a, that's a helmet in the spiritual world. The sword of the Spirit, our one offensive weapon. The specific texts of Scripture with which we answer Satan's attack. These are the pieces of armor. And the last one that puts it all together, because there's no better way to use truth, there's no better way to use faith and exercise our understanding of righteousness and the gospel of peace and salvation and the word of God. There's no better way to exercise all those people, pieces of armor than in prayer, right? That's how we do it. We pray. We speak to our Father about what is true and, and, and how we trust Him and how we know our salvation rests in His promises and, and so on. And so he says, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and for me also that words may be given to me and opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Paul understood his enemy, Satan. He understood his armor, the gospel. He understood his battlefield. Where's the battlefield? Where is Satan's battlefield? Where, is the, where do we fight against temptation? We fight against lies and so on. It's in the mind, isn't it? It's a battle of the heart. It's a battle of the mind. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 and following speak to this. It says it so clearly. I'll start in verse 3. 2 Corinthians 10, verse 3. Though we walk in the flesh, we have bodies, we walk in this world, we go to work, and so on. The war that we fight, we are not waging war according to the flesh. Satan's attacks, demonic attacks, attacks of the lies through the world, through false teaching, through temptation, all of it. You don't pick up something physical to respond to that onslaught. What he's saying here, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh well, then how are they going to accomplish anything? Are they powerful? Well, Paul says, but they do have divine power to destroy strongholds. Now, where are those strongholds? Verse 5, we destroy arguments. Where is an argument? Where does an argument take place? In the mind, right? Strongholds, arguments, and every lofty opinion in the mind raised up against what? The knowledge of God. That's in the mind too. And take every thought captive to obey Christ. Being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. Paul understood that his battlefield was all in the mind. Whether or not he would believe the truth or Satan's lies, whether or not he would walk in righteousness or follow Satan's temptation to sin, he fought it all here with the truth of God's Word, with the pieces of armor that God has given to us. He also understands, understood his victory in Christ. Victory in Christ. You can see these texts. They're glorious texts. Romans 8, 31-39. Ephesians 1, 
18 through 23, Colossians 2, verse 15. Take your pick. Which one should we turn to? Let's turn to Ephesians chapter 1. He knew that the battle that he was fighting has already been won in Christ. And yet he was called to stand and not give over to Satan's schemes as if the battle wasn't yet won or lost or to give over and seek to serve sin in some way. So the Apostle Paul writes of this victory. Verse 18, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, Ephesians 1.18, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you and what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in heavenly places. God raised Christ and gave him that position as the God-man, as the place of Lord over all, and that place of rule, that place of sovereignty, verse 21, is far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. That's... That's talking about demonic power, satanic power, worldly power. Christ is far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. And above every name that is named. And not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as the head over all things to the church, with it, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Paul knew that one of Satan's attacks is to convince believers that somehow... Their battle against sin is in the balance that it might be lost for them. And so to discourage them and drive them to despair and self-pity. And yet Paul says, Christ who lives in you through the Spirit is reigning over all. And you will one day receive your inheritance of a perfected person. That's what Ephesians 1 is about. The sovereignty of Christ is not up for vote. It's established forever. And that we will share with him in the new heaven and new earth. So in bringing this point to some application, my dear brothers and sisters in Christ, think for a moment with me about what your greatest spiritual battles are at present. What are they? Maybe it's a fight against a certain temptation. What is your greatest spiritual battle right now? Maybe it's a fight against believing a specific unbiblical perspective. You're wrestling with it. Maybe it's a fight to endure a very weighty trial of faith. Are you fighting the good fight of the faith? Do you realize who your enemy is and what his strategies are? Are you using the armor of God? You understand the battlefields in the mind. And you understand that the victory is already yours in Christ. This is how Paul waged war. And in Christ, we can as well. In fact, in your bulletin this morning, I've given you something that I hope will be a help to you for the battle of the mind. It's called Anthem. It's a strategy for overcoming strong desires that are sinful. Or strong desires that may tempt you to sin. So I commend that to you as a help in practicing spiritual battles of the mind 
I hope it'll be a blessing to you. Look down the road of your life and imagine that you are laying on your deathbed and you know that you're about to see Jesus face to face. And you get there with me for just a moment in your imagination. You're, you're there. You're taking your last breath, but you're mindful that, that it is so. And you're, you know Jesus will receive you very soon. And you remember, you look back on your life at that point and you remember where you are now. This specific battle. That, that you are presently dealing with. Will you be able to say then, like Paul, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. You see, that's an important perspective. That's why Moses in Psalm 90 tells us, praise to God, teach us to number our days so that we may get a heart of wisdom. It's important to look down and count the last of your days and look back on your life and say, was Christ at work in my heart? Did I, did I give to him? Or did I live for sin? Did I live for the world? Did I live for worthlessness? Did I live for time or did I live for eternity? What's wise? What's wise to do? May we all learn to be spiritual warfare warriors like the Apostle Paul, for the glory of Christ and for eternity. Number four, or 14, Paul persevered by looking to the coming of Christ persevering eternal perspective. When you read the New Testament about the life of the Apostle Paul, do you ever ask yourself, how did this man endure so much and keep on going? I think this is probably the the single greatest reason in terms of the truth that was operating in his mind. He did not have his affections on the things of this earth, but on eternity. He was constantly persevering with an eternal perspective. Paul persevered by looking to the coming of Christ. Oh, these are fantastic texts, right? 1 Corinthians 15, 50-58, which ends in be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Why? Because Christ died and rose again and will return and transform us to enjoy eternity with Him. 1 Thessalonians 4, 13-18 ends with, therefore, encourage one another with these words. What words? That the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a, with a cry of command and receive us to Himself so that we will always be with the Lord. Paul persevered by looking to the coming of Christ. Turn with me, though, to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3, verse 12. This is Paul's perspective here so clearly. Verse 12, not that I have already obtained this, or I'm already perfect. Not that I have, he's talking about resurrection perfection. Not that I have already obtained that, or I'm already perfect, but, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, Forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if, any, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Brothers, join in imitating me. 
And keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many, of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly or their appetites. And they glory in their shame with minds that are set on earthly things. But, Paul says, this, these last two verses are mostly what I had in mind, but our, our citizenship is in heaven. Our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. That was Paul's perspective. Looking for the coming of Christ. That was his prize. Looking to the coming glory. Romans 8, 18. We know that the suffering of this present life is not worth compared to be compared to the glory that's going to be revealed in us. He was looking ahead, not to all the earthly losses, but to the heavenly gains. A new body. A completely righteous being. Ability to enjoy the glory of God forever. To the coming glory. That's what he says there in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians 4 verse 16 says, So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. The things that are seen are transient. Things we can see and touch, they're fleeting. But the things that are unseen are eternal. That was Paul's perspective and hope. That's what enabled him to endure so much. And certainly, he persevered by looking to the coming reward. Philippians 4.1, as well as 1 Thessalonians 2.19-20, Paul continues to endure in ministry with great suffering because in those two verses, he is envisioning those to whom he's preaching on that day when they will stand before the presence of God blamelessly with joy. And he says, that will be my crown when I see you there redeemed and transformed and rejoicing in the presence of God. I will look back on my life of suffering that was instrumental in bringing you there, it's going to be worth it all. That'll be my joy. That's the way Paul felt. And we read Second Timothy 4.8, that he would receive that crown of righteousness, the reward of a completely righteous experience, sinless in mind and body. That's how Paul persevered. He wrote in Colossians 3.1-4, If then you have been raised with Christ, you seek the things that are above, where Christ is, where He is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on, on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth, for you've died and your life is hidden with Christ and God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. Paul persevered through much because of the eternal perspective, because he constantly set his mind on heavenly things and away from earthly things. He lived like Moses in Hebrews 11, 24-27. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. 
choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. You see, that's, that's how we're supposed to think. That's how we endure through any affliction. By faith, he left Egypt not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. That's the persevering eternal perspective. We're going to need to learn that more and more as the days come, to not be afraid of the anger of the king, but endure by seeing him who is invisible. By the power of Christ's Spirit, let's imitate Paul in this way as well. Finally this morning, Paul was one who lived exultant doxology or love for Christ. What does the word exultant mean? To dance with joy. It's, it's, it's being so joyful that you cannot keep still. And doxology? To praise the glory of God. Paul had an unbreakable habit. It wasn't a bad habit, though. It was a good habit. No matter what he talked about, he could not help but be overcome with a sense of the glory of God, the majesty of Christ, and a sense of awe and love for him. In, Christ's writing, or in Paul's writings, no matter what he was talking about, he would soon break into doxology, praising the glory of God. And I would bet that that happened not only in his writings, but probably when you were having a conversation with him. I could just imagine that. Can you? <laughs> I looked up all of Paul's doxologies, and there was many more than what I thought there was. In Romans 1, 24-25, that passage where Paul is considering the depravity of man, he considers the depravity of man, and soon, in light of this, this propensity of sinful man to exchange the truth about God for a lie, and worship and serve the creature instead of the creator, he soon says, the creator who, what? Who is blessed forever. The happy God. You, you can't, he can't even talk about the sinfulness of man and rejecting worship of God for the worship of things and say, oh, this happy, glorious, joyful creator. In Romans 9, 4-5, you know that text? He's burdened because he wants so much for his family, his Jewish beloved family, to, to believe in Christ and Christ alone. And he begins to speak of the privileges that they had received from God, that, they, that to them belongs the adoption and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and worship and the promises. And to them belongs patriarchs and from their race according to the flesh is the Christ. And right there, he begins to think of all these things that come from the gracious hand of God. And he says, Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. I wonder if Paul talked like that with people, right? Romans 11, 33-36. Paul was considering for the first 11 chapters of Romans the massive and majestic plan of God to save, to redeem, to transform both Jews and Gentiles through Christ alone. And after having written that, he couldn't help it. Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are His judgments, how inscrutable are His ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been His counselor, or who has given a gift to Him that He might be repaid? 
For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Or Romans 16, when Paul is considering all those ministry partners whom he loved and blessing them with the strength of the gospel, he ends that letter by saying, Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but now has been disclosed through the prophetic writings has been made known to all the nations according to the commandment of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God be glory forever through Jesus Christ. Amen. Even in Galatians, when he's preparing to rebuke a church, he can't help but even praise the Lord then. Galatians 1, 3-5. While under house arrest, considering all that God had planned to do in the church through Jesus Christ forever and ever, and the power that's available to the people of the church to accomplish those plans. Ephesians 3, 20 and 21, he says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work in us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Philippians 4, again, while under house arrest, considering God's heavenly provisions, to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen when considering the appearing of Jesus Christ. He says, He who is blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings, Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to Him be glory and eternal dominion. Amen. 1 Corinthians, or 1 Timothy 6, 14-16. And then even now, the text that we open with, while sitting in prison, Mamertine prison, knowing his martyrdom is coming, knowing how God delivered him and how God would deliver him again, even through death. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. What we see here is a man whose heart is fixed on the glory of God. And so even in the lowest earthly places of his of his life in in the prison, in a dungeon next to the sewage system of Rome. He's saying, I know that he will redeem me again and deliver me into his heavenly kingdom. How Paul loved Christ. How he had a clear sight of the glory of Christ in all circumstances. How he longed to praise the glory of Christ in and every situation. Why? Because God is worthy of it. May the Holy Spirit give us hearts and eyes like that. That's our prayer. By the power of Christ's Spirit and grace, let's imitate Paul as he imitated Christ. I've left one doxology out. 1 Timothy 1.17. Paul says, To the King of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. And he says this glorious doxology in response to thinking about his own salvation. He says, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly, I was a blasphemer. I was a persecutor. I was an insolent opponent of Christ then. But 
I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And grace, the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Full acceptance. It's absolutely trustworthy. It's absolutely true that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners and Paul knew who he was. He says, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. And Paul could not help in thinking about God's grace and mercy and patience toward him that he said, to the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. I want to ask you this morning, do you have the salvation that Paul had? That many of us have. Do you have it this morning? Do you have the salvation that Paul is rejoicing in in this text? Or do you still need it? Do you still need it? What do I mean? Salvation. It means rescue from first the penalty of sin. Paul taught us the payment that we receive for our sin is death. Look around you. Are people dying? Why? That's not the way God originally created the world to be. Death entered because sin came into the world. Through whom? Who did that? Well, Adam and Eve, but we all sin too, don't we? We are sinful people. We don't worship God with our whole heart in love. We worship ourselves. We, we orchestrate our lives around us to please ourselves. That's who we are. And for God's eyes, that's idolatry. And it's worthy of eternity separate from him under his eternal wrath. That's what the scripture says. It's so salvation we need from the penalty of sin. We also need it from the power of sin because we, are, we want to keep sinning. So if we're going to stop that, we need a heart that's changed. We need God to rescue us by putting his spirit inside of us and take out the heart that loves to sin and put in a different heart. Not, not physically, but spiritually. A heart that loves to obey Christ and submit to his lordship. It doesn't matter how sinful you've been. Look what Paul said. Doesn't matter what you've done. God loves to save sinners. You could be a, a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent, or anything else. God loves to save sinners. Provision has been made for you. Provision has been made for the chief of sinners to find forgiveness in eternal life. Well, well you say, how, how can God forgive sinners? Just Snapping his fingers? No, no. See, God is a just God. And he will punish sin more accurately and more wisely and perfectly than, than, than any judge of earth. He will. And so what he did in order to be merciful to sinners like us, he took Christ, the Son of God, became man, lived a perfect life under the law of God, and died on the cross. And on that cross... God takes the guilt and the sin of sinners and placed it on his own son and poured out his wrath upon him instead of us. And now God can show us mercy because his justice was completely absorbed in the body of Jesus on the cross. That's what the cross is all about. The cross isn't just about a good example of love. 
The cross isn't just about God saying to us, I love you. No, the cross is the place where God emptied out all of his wrath against the sin of those who would believe in Christ and absorbed it completely so that God is then free to declare sinners righteous like Christ is and welcome them into heaven and grant them forgiveness and bless them with eternal life forever. That's the provision of the cross. So don't try to save yourself. If you try to be good enough and save yourself, it won't work. In fact, God will reject you because the only righteousness he's satisfied with is his own, not yours. And don't try to continue in your sin because even though that may seem like the right way, it may deceive you into thinking that it's a satisfying way of life. The end of that way is death forever. Come to Christ. Submit to Christ alone. Give him your complete allegiance. He earned it by his dying in your place. Rest in Christ's provisions alone. Nothing else is needed. God is satisfied to save those who trust in Christ alone. And you can call out to him and ask him to save you just like that. If you will, you have God's promise. All who come to Christ will be received and raised on the last day to enjoy life forever with God. Don't leave today without salvation. You do not know when your last day will be. What is a profit if a man gains the whole world and loses his soul to an eternity without Christ? This is God's invitation of love to you. Do not refuse it. You won't regret it if you receive Christ. Would you stand with me? Let's pray together. Father, so many thoughts, desires that flood our heart as we worked through these texts together over these last three weeks and considered the life of the Apostle Paul. Father, we love the Christ-likeness that you worked in him. We love Christ. He is our Savior and Lord. And we are longing to see him face to face and to know the eternity that you have planned for those who are in Christ. Between now and then, Father, we ask you to make us like Jesus. Work these qualities in us that we may honor you with our lives, our words, our hearts, more and more, and be more effective, Father, in in bringing you glory and, and drawing other men and women to salvation in Jesus Christ, just like you have drawn us. Father, we need you. We are weak and frail. We cannot do any of these things in our own strength. And so we ask that you would empower us by the Holy Spirit. We thank you. We praise you because you are a good father who delights in doing what is great and good for your children. We pray in the name of Jesus, your son. Amen.